and teach us what you want us to know about working out or practicing our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, that term, work out your salvation, sounds strange to us, doesn't it? Uh, some of us maybe are like, no, that doesn't sound strange. But, but if you think about the way we talk about the process of salvation is that a person who doesn't know Christ, who is not saved, who is not following Christ, who's not in Christ, right? We would say they're, they're uh, Scripture calls them Gentile, uh, of the world, of the flesh. There's a lot of different ways uh, we talk about a person who doesn't yet know Christ. Sometime at a point in time, hear the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ, respond to it, ask Jesus Christ to be their Lord and Savior. Scripture says, if you call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So we see Scripture seems to point to this idea of a point in time. Person is not saved. Person hears the gospel. Person responds. Person is saved. So we, we tend to think about salvation from this perspective of a point in time. And some of us um, may even remember the day and the time. Anybody here, you remember the day and the date? Okay, what, what is it, Rick? It was the first Sunday in April in 1982. First Sunday of April in 1982. I was 16 year old. I was, go ahead, Rick, what were you going to say? In this building. Wow. Okay. I mean, so, so some folks, they remember the point. Um, I don't remember the date, but I was 16. It was right after Christmas, January. Uh, so I was in high school still. I heard the gospel from the pastor through Christmas. My mom and my dad and I in January went to his office and said, tell us more about this Jesus Christ. Share the gospel with us. My mom, my dad, all three of us together in the office prayed with him receive Christ, and then we were baptized afterwards. So some folks, we remember that point in time. Uh, some people even remember the date and the time of day. We usually understand salvation, if you will, then, as a moment. Paul seems to indicate it's also a process because he says, work out your salvation. We understand uh, what Paul means here by digging in a little bit deeply uh, and, and thinking through this, and, and I'm going to use today an, uh, an, another idea, a metaphor, if you will, uh, uh, or, or an example for marriage that will help us to understand the commitment Paul is talking about. And that, that concept that we're going to talk about is marriage. Marriage is very similar, if you think about it, because there is a period of time in which you are not married, Right? <laughs> Most of your young life, uh, you meet someone, you fall in love, you ask them to marry you, or they ask you to marry them, or you agree together to be married, you go before a church, or a pastor, or a justice of the peace, it can happen in a variety of ways, and you make a commitment, whether it's uh, spiritual, religious, legal, whatever it is, so you enter into some kind of point in time where up until the moment you say the I do's and exchange the rings, you're not married. After that point, you are. So in some ways of thinking, marriage is a moment, isn't it? But those of you who are married, <laughs> and those of you who have seen a marriage, you know somebody has married, uh, you have watched a marriage, know that the I do's are only the beginning of the process in which we learn to work out our marriage or practice our marriage, if you will. All of you who are married, most of you who have seen a marriage know at that moment things are far from over. 
Um, we like to watch romantic movies in our house. Um, some of you are like, oh my gosh, I can't believe you watch that stuff. But we like to watch those. Um, most all of them end this way, a kiss, and the camera fades back. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a marriage, there's a, there's a hint of a future relationship, and the, the show ends in kind of a happily ever after way, right? Um, that's not real life, is it? Anybody who's married, you can say amen. Your, your spouse is going to help you. It's all right. It is only after the I do's, if you will, that the real work of living out the marriage begins. For a marriage to work, it takes constant care. It takes constant work. It takes constant protection, if you will. It takes time together and communication, not only to survive, but to thrive. And the life of a marriage is worked out through the lives of the two people who are married. So in the same way, our salvation in Christ is both a moment and a process. It's a living relationship that takes time to work out. So Paul is saying to us, be very careful how you live in this relationship between you and the Father through Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, that you work it out. Don't just enter into a contract, an I do, with the Father, and then just go on about your way. What happens in a marriage if two people say, I do, but continue to live separate lives? It's not good, is it? It's not good. In the same way, our salvation is this living relationship that takes time to work out. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So should we be afraid? <laughs> as we work out or live out our salvation. I mean, it works for our marriage, right? <laughs> Anybody? No. Afraid of your spouse? We say we are not, but then we say things like, oh, man, wait till Lydia finds out. I've said that before. Wait till Lydia hears what I did. Oh, I'm going to be in trouble. Right? Is that the kind of fear Paul is talking about? I don't think it is. What he's saying here is to take it very seriously. We should take our salvation seriously, returning to this marriage concept, if you will, what happens in a marriage if you don't take it seriously? Some of us have been married long enough to know that there have been times in our marriage when we were very serious and less serious. And some of us may have been on the edge of difficult times where our marriage was, uh, it, it, it looked like something could happen if we weren't careful. It might fall apart. It might dissolve. Some of us have been through marriages that haven't made it. But Paul is not talking about having fear of your spouse, but instead, um, or fear of God in the terminology he's talking about with salvation, but instead saying to take this very, very seriously, that um, it takes time to know the Father. It takes time to come to know and understand Him as we read scripture as we study, after we surround ourselves with other followers, other believers, we connect to a church, we grow, we're discipled, if you will, and grown into Christ followers. Paul's saying that we take seriously coming to know Christ more and more, day by day, week by week, month by month, and year by year. If you have been married at any time at all, you know it's going to take work in a marriage. Why do we fool ourselves into thinking it's not going to take any work? in this salvation relationship. Paul is reminding us 
that the, the seriousness of this relationship is such that it's not a moment in time, one and done, but it is a lifetime commitment. Even after 31 years of marriage, I have not discovered all there, uh, all there is to know about Lydia. Um, I can honestly say I still don't understand women in a lot of ways, and any man who tells you they do is wrong. Li no, I'm not going to say lying, but wrong. <laughs> They're deluding themselves. Um, there's more left after 31 years to work out, and it's the same with following Christ. I didn't do the math. Let's see, 16, 53. Somebody do the math on that. I'm not going to try to do it while I'm standing here. 368. How much? No, let's see. Uh, I'm 53, and I was saved when I was 16, so how long is that? We should do, well, now we got to do the math. 37. 37. Okay, so 31 years married, 37 years saved, um, maybe a little ahead of the curve, uh, marriage versus salvation, um, but I don't know everything there is to know about God. Anybody? <laughs> if you think you do or you say you do, then you're fooling yourself. God wants to know us in a deeper and deeper way. Which brings us to the first question I have for you today. What are you doing to actively work out your salvation in a serious and sincere way? Doctors practice medicine by doing medicine, but if you've ever known a doctor or a PA or anybody like that, they are constantly studying. They are constantly learning. Uh, we had a good friend in Montana who was a, a PA, a physician's assistant, and he had to recertify periodically, and every time he had to recertify, he would have to study, he would have to learn new things, he would have to go to new classes, and he would have to uh, maintain a body of, of learning in order to be recertified, and I, we were visiting them in Montana a couple months ago, we went to visit Abby, and he's since retired, and I asked him, would you get back into being a PA, and he's like, oh no, I've forgotten so much. He's like, there is no way at this point I could go back because I've forgotten so much. He said, I would have to almost get a whole new degree at this point. Um, doctors, I hope, for the most part, seem to take that very seriously. PAs, nurses, and other people in the medical field work out their practice of medicine constantly and consistently, always learning, always practicing. That's the kind of work we need to put into both our marriages, right? and into our relationship with Christ. That is the kind of work that we have to put into it. So what are you doing? What kind of continuing education are you undertaking to further the process of your salvation with the Father? Um, are you reading anything? Are you studying anything? Are you meeting with another small group of people? Are you uh, coming to church? Some of you are here. Some of you may be watching online. Are you connected with a body that will walk with you and help you to grow? Because this is an ongoing process that takes your whole life. It takes your whole life. Same as with a marriage. It takes forever. Now, a side note here, um, all metaphors eventually break down. Uh, a marriage that is not cared for can end in divorce. However, true salvation in Christ, we can read in Scripture, is held in place by Christ and can never be lost. So um, no matter how badly we do <laughs> at our process of salvation and walking with the Father, we don't lose our salvation in Him. 
That salvation power is held by Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. Now, Paul was not done when he said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He had more to attach to the statement. And he had the why. He said, here's what you do. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But why? And here's what he says. Because it is the, the Father God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul reminds us that salvation is worked out in us and through us by a living God living in us, working according to his purposes and reasons. So while we often think our salvation is for us, Paul is reminding us that our salvation is also for God. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. We read these things, we know these things, we listen to these things, we memorize these things, but often we get self-centered about these things. Never forget your salvation is for God as much as it is for you because he works in you for his will and his work and his good pleasure. Now, having said what to do and why to do it, Paul turns to the how, and this is where it gets interesting. He says, do all things without grumbling and disputing that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Do everything without, um, some versions say arguing and complaining, some say grumbling and disputing. How hard is that? I know we've talked about this before, right? How hard is it to do not some things, but everything without arguing and complaining, without grumbling and disputing? And this leads us to our second question. <laughs> what kind of things do you complain and argue about? What kind of things do you complain and argue about? What are you doing to work out your salvation? What steps are you taking? That was the first question. Second question for the day, what are you complaining and arguing about? And I say that this is important to think about because Paul said this is how you work out your salvation. One of the ways you work it out is you stop complaining and arguing. Now, out of all the things Paul could have said, uh, if we were writing the book of Philippians and we were making uh, this passage and we said, work out your salvation with fear and trembling um, and, and God works in you to will and work for his good pleasure, we would say, do it by X. We, we would fill, uh, read the Bible, go to church, follow Jesus, get involved in a small group. We, we have all kinds of things, give to missions, whatever. We have all kinds of things we would fill in. Out of all the things he said, Paul said, don't argue and don't complain. Work out your salvation by not arguing and not complaining. The word arguing means this, exchange or express diverging or opposite views, typically in a heated and or angry way. We know this. We don't really probably need the definition. We all know what arguing is like. We've done it at home uh, with our mom, our dad, our spouse. Uh, a friend, a neighbor, somebody on Facebook, uh, wherever it is, we've done it. Uh, we've seen it on TV. We've seen it in the news. We've seen it in our own lives. Um, 2 Timothy 2, I'm going to read two verses, 14 and 23. 14 says this. Paul says, remind them, that's the church, of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words. So when Paul wrote Timothy, a young pastor, and he said, when you speak to your church, Charge them, command them, direct them, guide them, lead them not to quarrel, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. 
And then he also says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. This is very important for Paul to teach a young pastor, Timothy, that as he led his church, teach them not to, to argue, to dispute, and to quarrel. Have you learned this truth yet? Nothing good comes from arguing. <laughs> have you learned this? Nothing good comes from an argument. I mean, if we, if we understand the word argument to mean an exchange or express of diverging views in a heated or angry way, so we're not saying don't have conversations and talk about diverging views. We're not saying keep your business to yourself and don't discuss anything with anybody else. But we're saying as it, as it, it, it is connected to the idea of arguing, nothing really good comes from that. And I spent a lot of time this week trying to think of a time in which uh, I was in an argument that actually produced something good. Uh, and maybe you'll have one. Um, but I find that arguments uh, are one of the best ways to, to ruin a relationship, if you will. They're one of the best ways to ruin a relationship. If you want to ruin a relationship, argue about every detail that can be split in two. Argue about everything that will destroy a relationship. It's a recipe for strife, for disaster, for failure. Now, Paul would have implored us instead to live out the words of Proverbs 15.1, which says this, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a hard answer stirs up anger. There's that elusive idea of gentleness, softness. Man, a little gentleness in a marriage, right? A little gentleness in a relationship goes a long way. Paul says, don't argue. Don't complain. Be gentle. Learn to shine. Learn to shine. How can we shine as we hold out the hope of the gospel of Christ if we're arguing and complaining? How? I don't know. I think, the, I think in, the, in the last couple of years, Christians have done a lot of damage to themselves and a lot of damage to the gospel of Christ. By the way, we've conducted ourselves in the public eye. Paul says, do everything without arguing and complaining. Charge your churches to not quarrel. Why do we think that doesn't apply to us? Why do we think we can quarrel a little? <laughs> Why do we think we can be ugly a little bit? Learn to shine in gentleness. That would get people's attention, wouldn't it? Barbara, wouldn't it? Ask Barbara sometime to tell you her testimony of the last year or two as she's been a Christ follower and how her life has changed at work. And I'm, I'm, I'm telling a little bit of your story, but you can tell the story and what other people have noticed about her. Um, and there are others here who have come to faith in Christ and changed to such a degree that people said, something's different about you. You're gentle now. You're gentle now. There's not a great deal of gentleness going around. A gentle demeanor shines the light of Christ over people who are having a really bad time. And in case you didn't notice it, there are a lot of people right now having a really bad time in this life. It gets the attention of people in the same way the light of the stars at night grab our attention. Now, if you live where I live, I can go outside on a good night maybe I can see 10 stars. I hope some of you who've grown up in the city have been to the country 
have been to where it's dark. Um, I remember living in Montana. We had a hot tub in the backyard. We'd go sit in the hot tub at night in the winter. You could see an uncountable number of stars. It just grabs your attention because it's breathtaking. It's amazing. It's amazing. Well, let's look at this definition here as we continue this thought about grumbling and complaining because this is an, another truth for us, if you will. Grumbling and complaining is expressing dissatisfaction or annoyance about the state of affairs and events. We've complained a lot in the last two years, haven't we? We all have. Uh, here's another truth. I don't know if you've gotten this yet, but the best way to ruin something good is to complain about it. Best way to ruin something good is to complain about it. Uh, it's true, and you know it's true, and you've been there. You had a job. You had a relationship. You had an item. You had a possession, and you were perfectly happy with it, and then something happened. Somehow, some dissatisfaction rose up, whether it was internal uh, or external, uh, from media, from advertising, however it got into you. And all of a sudden, you were dissatisfied and you began to complain. Suddenly, nothing was right and nothing was good. This, by the way, is the foundation of marketing. Have you figured that out yet? Um, my oldest daughter is studying marketing. Uh, it's, the, it's the foundation of advertising more than it is marketing. I mean, marketing has some good sides. Advertising... I mean, do you really need another phone? I have, I don't know, I have a 10. I, I have an iPhone 10. You know, and I, I used to say I always skip a generation. And I think we're up to like, what, 13 now? And I'm like, do I really need a $1,000 iPhone 13 that has like three cameras on the back? Do I, I mean, it takes phone calls. Uh, it does texts and emails. It does pretty much everything I needed to do right now. Do I really need another iPhone? But Apple wants me to be dissatisfied with the phone that I have so that I want another phone. So they write slick marketing uh, to make me dissatisfied with what I have. I was happy with it when I got it. It was amazing. Uh, those of you who can remember back to the no cell phone generation, there's more power. I know you know this. There's more power in this phone than there was in the ship that took men to land on the moon. You ever seen Apollo 13? I love that movie where they, you know, they're halfway to the moon, the ship breaks, they're like putting it together with duct tape and, and, and slinkies and stuff that they, they found laying around. You know, they need the, the square peg for the round hole, and they're like, who made this thing, right? Um, do you remember when they said, Houston, we have a problem? All the guys pulled out slide rules. They didn't even pull out calculators. They pulled out, anybody ever use a slide rule? Does anybody even know what a slide rule is? Younger generation is like, slide rule, what's that? Um, look it up later. It's a way to do math. I actually was taught how to use one because I asked my chemistry teacher who had a drawer full of them stored away. She hadn't thrown them away yet. We didn't use slide rules when I was in high school, but she still had some. She taught me how to use one. Fascinating, but I wouldn't send somebody to the moon with a slide rule. But now we have these phones that, I mean, this is, this is a computer in every way. It's an amazing thing, but they want us to be dissatisfied with it. Um, how about your car? You have a great car. It works. Uh, you may have a beater, but it works. Um, but, but what does Detroit want you to think? Your car's crap. <laughs> you need a new car. You need a better car. And you know what? One of, the, one of the easiest ways to get dissatisfied with your own car, I just discovered this in the last year, is rent a car. 
I think there's a scam there mixed up in the whole rental car industry. I really do. There's some, uh, I mean, people need to rent cars and they need cars. They go through cars fast. They always have the newest car and the best car. And man, I got into the car and I turned my phone on in the car and the phone connected and they're like talking to each other, you know, and I put in an address and the car's like, hey, we'll take you there. And my phone stuff pops up on the screen and I'm like, wow, this is amazing. And um, we were in Jackson. We rented a big SUV. Lydia's parents wanted this giant SUV. It had seat coolers and seat air conditioning. Anybody have seat coolers? Oh my gosh. <laughs> They're awesome. Whenever I drive long distances, my back gets sweaty. I know that sounds gross. It just gets hot. Lydia drives all winter long with her seat heater on, and I'm like, I can only stand it for like maybe two minutes and I have to turn it off. Seat air conditioner, I would run that thing all the time. I love it. But it breeds dissatisfaction because you get back home and you're like, the car that was great when you left is now, it's like, my seat's hot. My seat's cold. <laughs> my phone, I thought we had a great car because it kind of talks to the phone. But now it's like I plug my phone in and it doesn't display my phone on the screen and I'm like, man, that one we had in Albuquerque was so nice. My, my phone showed on the screen and we get dissatisfied. Now, it's not limited to market because to marketing because guess who else has figured out? Satan has figured this out. In fact, maybe Satan invented advertising. I don't know. But Satan uses this all the time and it becomes more insidious when we are convinced for various reasons, whether it's social media, television, or whatever, that another family is better than my family. Somebody else's kids are, are better than my kids. Um, my spouse is not as good as that guy's spouse. My husband's not as good as that single guy. And we begin to be dissatisfied with what we have, and we complain about everything we own, and we gripe about our husbands and our wives, and we criticize our kids, grumbling and complaining destroys. That's why Paul said, work out your salvation by not doing that thing. <laughs> don't grumble and don't complain. God would rather hear you talk to him than grumble to a church member or complain to somebody at work about all that is wrong in the world. That brings us to the most difficult, I think, passage and seg segment of this uh, passage in the Bible. Um, where I'm going to read out of uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. He says, Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is, listen, the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Don't complain. Instead, be joyful. Don't grumble. Instead, pray continually. Don't gripe. Instead, give thanks. But we fall on that other side every time, right? But not maybe not every time, but, but, but a lot of the time. And Paul wrote to the church in Thessalonica, and, and you'll see he writes to all these churches, and he keeps telling them the same thing. He tells them in Philippians. He tells them in Galatians. He tells them in Thessalonians, stop complaining. Stop griping. Rejoice. Pray without ceasing and give thanks. These are the antidotes to the things of this world, if you will. We want to complain. Paul reminds us to instead be joyful. We want to grumble. Paul says, instead, pray. <laughs> Lord, forgive my bad attitude. Anybody prayed that today or this week? Maybe we, need to, maybe we need to do that more. I see some people raise their hand. Thank you for your honesty. Lord, um, I, instead of gripe, I'm going to thank you. Thank you that I have a car that's paid for 
and it works. And it gets me from A to B, even if it doesn't talk to my phone. I had a car in my first car, in fact. Um, I lived in New Mexico. It gets cold in New Mexico in the winter. It's great in the summer, but it gets really cold in the winter. The heat was broken. Um, I love that car, even without the heat. Because <laughs> it got me from A to B. Because I didn't have a car before that car. My parents got me a car. The heat broke pretty quickly after we got it. It was used. But I was still so happy to have that car. I don't know if I would be happy about that in Chicago. <laughs> it gets a lot colder here. A lot colder in Montana. Um, but we have to learn to be happy and give thanks in all circumstances. Um, and Paul reminds us in Thessalonians that it's not just a good idea, but it is his will. It is God's will for us. So how do we do this? I have no idea. I have no idea other than we take the Bible for what it says and we do it. How come the phrase, just do it, works for Nike, but it doesn't work for us, <laughs> right? We can quote Nike, just do it, and we think about that in sports, and we celebrate what people do in sports. Why can't we extrapolate some of that fervor into Christianity, into our, our working out of our salvation, and just do it? He didn't say, be joyful when you feel like it, pray at a daily established time, and give thanks when things are going your way, did he? He used words and phrases like always, without ceasing, and in all circumstances. He didn't want to leave any room for confusion. He didn't want to leave any room for, for, for question. He's saying to just do it. Now, Paul closes with this final statement. He says, even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon a sacrificial altar of faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should be glad and rejoice for me. Paul knows his time is short. That's all he's saying here. It's like, I know my time is short. We, knew, we, we know from the, the first uh, Sunday when we talked about the story of the planting of the church that when Paul wrote this letter to the church, he was imprisoned. And so he knows when he wrote this to the church, he's like, my time's short. I'm rejoicing uh, in your faithfulness to do what I'm writing here because this is what God is calling us to do. Paul knows he's being offered up. And he finishes with the statement, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now, in closing, I want to just read, uh, read from Matthew 5, because um, this connects with the idea uh, of what we read in Philippians. It says this in Matthew 5, 14 through 16, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works. Give glory to the Father who is in heaven. Let your light shine, Paul said, as children without blemish in the midst of a crooked twi uh, and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. Let your light shine this week and stop grumbling and stop complaining and get busy working out your salvation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, um, we thank you for your word. Man, it's pointed. It is pointed and it gets right to the root of what's going on in us and with us. Um, Lord, teach us how to do what it says in 1 Thessalonians, to rejoice always. 
Lord, teach us how to rejoice always. Lord, teach us how to pray without ceasing, to be continually connected with you, Father, in a conversation the same as we would be with another person that was walking with us throughout our day. And Lord, teach us to give thanks. You've, you have told us to do these things, that it's your will for us. And so, Lord, I pray that as we do these things, as we practice working out our salvation, as we practice rejoicing, we practice praying, we practice giving thanks, Lord, we'll get better at it. And that's something I've noticed, Lord, that when I practice at things, I get better at them. Sometimes it's the beginning of the practicing that's the hardest step. Well, Lord, you've called us to do these things, to be these kind of people, lights shining to a lost generation in a world of darkness. Lord, teach us and guide us and, and improve us and, and conform us into the image of Christ that we would become the lights that shine in gentleness in Elmwood Park and Schiller Park and Chicago and Wooddale and all the places that we live uh, all over the Chicagoland area. Wherever we're watching from on the internet, whether it's Georgia or Texas, Myanmar, it, it doesn't matter, Lord, wherever we're at, make us your, your bright, shiny lights, your mouthpiece of gentleness in sharing the gospel. And may the things we say and do reflect your will for us to be thankful, to stop complaining, um, and to be the kind of people you need us to be. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're going to turn to communion, and we talked a little bit about, um, at the beginning of the message, the idea of salvation and uh, a person who isn't in Christ and then comes to Christ uh, by, by confessing them as Lord and Savior. Um, Christ said there's something that he wanted us to do as believers, as Christ followers. So we're going to do communion in a moment. Communion is for those who call Christ Lord and Savior. Um, there's nothing wrong with not taking communion. If you're not a Christ follower, just take the cup, set it in the chair next to you. Don't worry about it. Sit, listen, pray. And, 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 and when you become a Christ follower, then share this with us. Um, if you are struggling with something right now. You have broken relationships. You're a Christ follower, uh, but you've been grumbling and complaining. You're having problems with your, with your spouse, with your kids, with somebody at work, with some friend or family member or a neighbor or something. You need to work that out first. Lord says, before you come to the altar, go make it right with that person. So there's no shame in setting the cup aside for that reason as well. Um, I always remember, I tell the story when we lived in Poland, um, they would have the whole church stand up at the beginning of communion, and at the time when they got to pat, when they came to pass it, everybody that didn't want communion or wasn't taking communion would sit down at that point. At least half the people sat down every time. It was different people because different people were dealing or struggling with different things, and they're like, I, I, I'm not right before the Lord today. I need, to, I need to go talk to this person, or I need to find forgiveness from the Father first in this issue before I celebrate communion. So there's no shame in that. If you need to set it aside today and say, I've got to make things right with the Father first, then do that. Um, but for those of us who are prepared, and Scripture talks about being prepared, it says to, um, to pray, uh, ask for forgiveness, make sure you're, you're clean, if you will, and ready to go before the Father. This, um, 
if you will, meal that we share as communion was uh, and, and is a commemoration of what Christ did um, with the 12 the night that he was betrayed before he went to the cross. Um, he sat down and he had a meal with the 12 and he sent them in advance to prepare it. And at the day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread came, um, they met in the house where everything had been prepared at that evening. And Jesus sat down with his apostles and he said, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I will not eat it again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he received the cup, which he gave thanks, and he took it. He divided it among them. And he says, I say to you again, I will not drink from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took the bread, and when he, when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to them. And he said, this, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me and the cup in a likewise manner. This is the cup. Uh, it's the covenant of my blood, even that which is poured out for you. Um, some of us grew up in different faith backgrounds or maybe no faith background at all. And maybe you're like wondering, is this really like Jesus' body and blood in here? And some faith backgrounds teach that it is. Uh, we believe these are symbolic elements. We believe when Christ picked up that bread and said, this is bread which represents my body, we, we believe he meant it represents his body. It didn't change into something else. It stayed bread. Um, the juice, the wine that they used at that moment um, remained wine, but he said um, this, he, he, he was really into object lessons. If you've read the Gospels at all, Jesus was a master at taking these, these object lessons and making them real to people. And so I think there's no mistake that the bread is white, kind of like, probably in, kind of like flesh. It's whitish. Not everybody's white, but maybe, you know, Bread comes in different shades just like flesh does, right? Maybe the bread Jesus used was darker. I don't know. There's no mistake that the juice kind of looks like blood, although it's not. It represents that, and I, I think he chose those two things because they were representative of what those two things meant. But remember, they're just symbolic. Um, as we share this together in a moment, um, it says, on the night he was betrayed at the conclusion of his feast. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to open mine real quick. Give me just a second. These are tricky. We got new ones, so hopefully these ones taste good. I think some of our old ones might have fermented. Some of you might want those ones. They're in my office. <laughs> we got some new ones. I think they sat in a hot closet in my office all summer. And, uh, yeah, I think they, they might have got a little fermented. But, anyway, these are new ones. <laughs> so um, it says he took the bread uh, at the conclusion of the feast and having blessed it he broke it he gave his disciples and he said this is my body which is given for you the scripture says this is the bread in, in John 6 it says this is the bread which came down from heaven not as the fathers ate and died but he that eats this bread shall live forever. On the same night, our Lord took the cup, and having blessed it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, this is my blood, which was shed for you. Hebrews 9 says, and according to the law, I may almost say all things are cleansed with blood, and apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of, of sin. 1 John 1, 7 says, if we walk in the light and he, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. 
And then Paul in 1 Corinthians, when he wrote the church of Corinth, wrote and said, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And that's why we do this. Uh, the Lord said, hey, when you get together as a church, as a family, as a congregation, uh, in a small group, it, you know, in any kind of setting where there are believers gathered and you share a meal, remember me. Um, so we do this in church as a remembrance. I honestly think this probably gave rise to grace before a meal. Anybody you pray before you eat? I think the whole idea and the concept of communion gave rise to praying before we eat. Um, and so if you pray before you, you eat, let communion and the idea of sharing that together kind of inform that process that as you eat, you're remembering as a group of believers eating together that Christ sacrificed his life for you. Um, again, I'm going to read that from 1 Corinthians. It says, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Lord Jesus, we thank you for communion. We thank you for the remembrance that you left for us. Lord, um, there are not a lot of things uh, that have taste and smell associated with our Christian walk, but this is one. A lot of things are tactile. We can touch a Bible. Um, we can hear words. We can see uh, words. We can see things. We can see images, but uh, the the, the act of communion also carries with it this, this taste and smell element that we uh, don't often see in other places. And Lord, we thank you that you chose to, to communicate with us in all of our senses. Some of us learn and retain information in different ways, and we thank you that you gave us uh, the act of communion and that celebration uh, to, to help us remember you in a different way. And Lord, we love food. Most of us, I think, are, are food people. We like to eat. We're probably beginning to think about lunch, even as we speak. And Lord, um, remind us when we eat together that it's not just about uh, satiating desires for food, making our stomach full, or, or fulfilling some, uh, some pleasure of a certain taste or flavor or thing that we like, but Lord, that, that the act of eating together with other believers is special and that in fact uh, according to what's written in your scripture it looks like we might eat together in heaven which would be amazing um, and, and we look forward to that as well Lord. We thank you for today, for this time to worship for this memorial that you set aside for us in communion. May we go from this place to be salt and light in this community lights of gentleness that we not complain, that we not grumble, that we not argue, that we become people who are constantly and continually in prayer before you, praying without ceasing, giving thanks in all circumstances, and rejoicing. We pray this in the name of your Son and ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ephesians 30, 20 uh, through 21 says this, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 All right, so next week.